Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to the very first of this year's pre-performance talks and to a brand new production of Don Giovanni. I'm Christopher Cook and I shall be looking after the proceedings this evening. Um, Don Giovanni was first performed in Prague on the 29th of October 1787. It's the second of the collaborations between Mozart and his librettist Lorenzo da Ponte. And the full title of the work is The Rake Punished or Don Giovanni. So within the title is the idea that we're going to see a wicked life brought to justice, brought to book. But not before, of course, we in the audience have enjoyed seeing and hearing what a wicked life could be. The opera was given its Viennese premiere on May the 7th, 1788, the following year, and Mozart, as was his practice, working with a new cast in part, wrote new arias and a duet for this second premiere. So, for example, Don Ottavio has two arias, both of which we're going to hear tonight, one which was originally written for Prague and one for Vienna. Put simply, of course, the opera tells the story of Don Giovanni's final days on earth before he goes to hell. It begins with the seduction of Donna Anna, and by adding insult to injury, Don Giovanni kills her father, the Commendatore. He's then pursued by Anna and her fiancé, Don Ottavio, who are bent on revenge for the outrage that uh, she's experienced. In the meantime, one of his former conquests, Donna Elvira, has followed him, uh, and still, apparently, is in love with him. Um, and she is just one of literally hundreds carefully catalogued by Don Giovanni's faithful servant Leporello in his catalogue aria. We're about to see Don Giovanni in action as he tries to prize a sweet and pretty and not so innocent country girl, Zelina, away from her fiancé Mazzetto. But retribution comes, of course, always as a price to be paid. In a graveyard, one night, in one last kind of great gesture, Don Giovanni invites the stone statue put up in memory of the dead commendatory to join him for supper. And in due time, the statue arrives at the feast and it is a fiery curtain that ends the piece. Or not quite in Richard Jones's production here at English National Opera, but we shan't be giving any surprises away. And you can see on the screen to the left images from this brand new production by Richard Jones. Well, we have a quartet of guests this evening. Sarah Tipple, who's the staff director on this new production. Sarah Champion, who's covering the role of Donna Elvira. And Andrew Smith, who's a member of the music staff here, you know, and they're going to perform an aria from the opera. But our first guest is Dr Aoife Monks, a reader in drama at Queen Mary University in London. Will you please welcome Aoife Monks. <laughs> Come and sit next to me. Um, Aoife, a little bit about the legend of Don Juan. Where, where does it come from? Uh, well, it's a folk myth, as um, many figures who are... Thank you very much. Uh, many figures who are, who are motivated by extreme drives and desires. But the figure becomes institutionalized, as it were, or first performed in de Molina's uh, play in the Renaissance. So as a kind of theatrical figure or an artistic figure, uh, Don Giovanni in his early stages really appears in the Renaissance. And I would argue reaches his apotheosis in Mozart's opera as the great figure of the Enlightenment as indeed perhaps Mozart himself was. We may come back to that, but in the meantime, the thought occurs to me that there are really only two modern myths. 
One is Don Juan, Don Giovanni, and the other, of course, is Dr. Faustus, another Renaissance myth. Do you see a connection between these two modern myths? I think these are the two heroes, or perhaps anti-heroes, of the modern age. And uh, indeed, there is a deep-seated connection between them. The German playwright Goethe is deeply influenced by Mozart. He stages the Magic Flute numerous times in his theatre at Weimar and actually attempts to write a sequel to the Magic Flute, if we could imagine such a thing. So the Faust figure that he produced in his famous play, I think very much is a twin of Don Giovanni. And they're twins because they are both men who are driven by the desire to accumulate as much experience as is humanly possible. Don Giovanni, sexual experience, sexual knowledge, Faust, scientific knowledge and experience. And what we see, I think, in both cases is an exploration, really, of the limits of that desire for knowledge and experience, the, the social costs of it, the dangers of it, and its enormous pleasures. It's interesting that both of them, in their desire for knowledge, tar of the hunt in the end. I mean, one of the kind of morals that sort of seeps underneath both of these stories in, in all their versions is the idea that when you do have this knowledge of huge sexual conquest or the knowledge beyond your own scholarliness, somehow it all palls, it becomes less interesting. Well, I wonder if it's helpful to set some of these thoughts in the context of what's going on for Mozart at the time that he's writing this opera. Mozart has become a Freemason. He's no longer working under royal patronage. He's become a kind of liberated artist. And this, I think, is a symptom of his deep commitment to the project of the Enlightenment, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. We tend to think of it as a moment where culture is secularized, where religion is withdrawn from becoming a central feature of how people live towards an emphasis on reason. And it's hard to see, perhaps initially, why a libertine, a man like Don Giovanni, who's only interested in sensuous pleasures, might be a figure for Mozart of the Enlightenment. But if we think about the ways in which Don Giovanni exercises his interest and experience, we can see a certain logic there, I think. He's terribly dispassionate and egalitarian about who he has sex with. He has sex with everybody. And we could say that he is a man of enlightenment also in his sense of conducting a certain kind of survey of sexual experience and preference. Indeed, the opera mentions a kind of set of national surveys where he compares different women from different nations. So there's a way in which Don Giovanni, while being seeking out the pleasures of the flesh, is doing it almost in a, in a, as a kind of bureaucrat uh, in which he's collecting experience in a highly dispassionate way and also really where it's equal opportunities. He'll have sex with every single woman he meets. And I think there is a kind of um, rationality, oddly, to his seeking of sensuousness. Well, you make it sound deeply rational as if he's kind of you know, <laughs> engaged in a kind of almost 19th century experiment in which he's going to uh, produce a taxonomy of sexual pleasure. But surely, in the end, it is irrational. I mean, the whole of this kind of obsession with women, the whole of his sexual drive has a, a fundamentally irrational quality that stands in opposition, maybe, to the Enlightenment. And on the other hand, what he's also doing is perhaps experimenting as a character, and we might say Mozart is also experimenting, with a kind of methodological question. What happens if you live without concern for morality and law? Mm -hmm. 
What happens if you choose not to be bound by social expectation, by social norms, and indeed by legal norms? What would then happen to the culture? So yes, in some ways his drive is irrational, but Mozart's experiment almost feels like a, sci a scientific one. He's, he's almost saying, right, let's see what happens. Let's put this in train and find out the consequences, which of course are destructive and uh, violent, but also incredibly pleasurable for the audience. So we enjoy watching what happens. It is enormously pleasurable for us. He does, of course, get his just desserts, as Christopher mentions. He gets dragged down to hell. Uh, but we even enjoy that as a spectacle. Well, we can come back to this notion of pleasure uh, in what happens in a moment, um, the vicarious nature of the piece. But one other thought, um, in a way, the music is extraordinarily logical. Mm. Um, uh, and yet what the music portrays is deeply irrational. There is a tension, therefore, in the very nature of the form that is perhaps part of the story. Yes, I think that's right. And I think there is a kind of paradox, perhaps, at the heart of the opera, which teaches us about the dangers of this unlicensed libertine who only seeks out pleasure for its own sake. And, of course, we see him punished. But there is a certain kind of irony that I think, at least, the music's at its most beautiful and its most sensuous exactly at the moment that Don Giovanni is pulled down to hell. And so even while Mozart's narrative might be condemning, ultimately condemning, Don Giovanni's licentiousness, at the same time, he's sort of making libertines of all of us. Because after all, what do we do when we go to opera except seek out the pleasures of sensuality, uh, of of entertainment, of the irrational. There's a way in which he uh, implicates us in exactly the pleasures that Don Giovanni is being punished for, perhaps. So we shouldn't take too much attention to the famous sex set at the end when the moral is pointed. This is just a neat way of ending the evening, but really our hearts are already uh, down below with Don Giovanni. I think there can be a conflict between what the narrative teaches us and what we're actually enjoying or taking pleasure in when we go to see a theatrical performance. I think we all know, really, that the villain is the best role, and it's the one that we enjoy most as audience members while watching it. Perhaps in some ways, those stories have to punish the villain in order to give us license to enjoy their sins. So we're given a sort of neat ending, which, which kind of holds those, that sinfulness uh, and then allows us to treat the opera like a kind of safety valve. We can vicariously enjoy Don Giovanni's transgressions, take enormous pleasure while safe in the knowledge that he will, after all, be condemned to hell at the end. And it's also a piece, of course, which, while deeply serious and deeply moral in some ways, is called a, an opera giocoso. It is also funny. We laugh, and we nearly always laugh with the Don, don't we? We do, and I think there is something interesting about the sense that Don Giovanni is treated as comic, perhaps, because the drive there is towards bodily experience. Faust is seen as the great tragedy because his drive is towards knowledge and enlightenment. In many ways, the stories are incredibly similar, but there's something about their register, the register of drive for sex and drive for knowledge, that makes one comic and one tragic. Eva Monks, thank you very much indeed. Our next guest this evening is Sarah Tipple, who's the staff director on this new production here of Don Giovanni at, by Richard Jones. Would you please welcome Sarah Tipple?
Sarah, the opera begins, I think for all of us, with a puzzle. Um, was Donna Anna raped by Don Giovanni? Uh, was she consenting um, to what happened? Um, what have you decided in this production? Um, well, it feels a little... Um it feels a little counterintuitive to sort of give away um, something like that before people see the production. But um, suffice to say that we've decided that there is a very, a very specific decision about that moment, and um, it's consensual up to a point. Um, uh, and that, that sort of the fact that there is an element of consent in it. Um, definitely makes Don Anna's journey through the piece more interesting and more psychologically complex as a result. So. It, it certainly, I mean, the tension between the two ideas certainly helps us explain her continuing refusal to marry Don Ottavio, constantly putting off. I mean, this sweet, rather dull young man, <laughs> you, know, you can see why she doesn't want to marry him. Yes, you can. I think she, she never wanted to marry him in the first, in, certainly in the in the in the interpretation that Richard has has gone for she she was never really attracted to Ottavio in the first place and that was the chosen man for her and actually Don Giovanni's probably the only person she's ever met who's really sort of excited her sexually um, but then that goes very much awry with with pretty disastrous consequences so then she has to deal with the sort of guilt and shame of that throughout the piece while also trying to marry herself to the idea of um, who she's actually got to marry. Excuse the sort of pun. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the world that, that, that you've all created for this Don Giovanni, some of which we can see on the screen. Tell us about it. Well, it's, um, it's, it's sort of loosely set in the 40s in Spain, and there's a real emphasis in the production, um, or certainly in discussions of the production, uh, of the fact that it's a very kind of Catholic country, um, because what Richard was really interested in exploring was, and Aoife sort of touched on it, it's a sort of extension of what Aoife was talking about, where you have a character, Don Giovanni, who has no moral compass whatsoever. And actually, in this production, he's sort of godlike, like a drug. So when people have a taste of him, they're, they're kind of addicted. Um, and so, actually... Um, so he's operating with no moral compass whatsoever, whereas everyone else is trying very hard to repress their very their kind of natural animal desires. So we talk about them in, uh, talked about them in rehearsal as being socialised animals. So the co kind of contrast between Don Giovanni doing what he wants all the time um, and operating with this manifesto that he expresses in Act Two, where he says, "Women are heavenly, wine is salvation." These are the ultimate glories of life. And those are the only things he cares about. And why is everyone else in such a tiz about it? Um, and, it's, it's, and I think in, in some respects it makes the piece a lot more interesting in terms of those other characters because actually what we witness is them being in a tiz about it and how, how they deal with meeting somebody who has no moral compass. That would also, though, suggest that Don Giovanni in this production is the only honest figure on stage. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't call him honest myself. Uh, he definitely, he definitely sort of um, angles the truth in a way that suits him. Um, but yes, but honest I think to him, honest like, to spiritually, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, tell us about the doors. There are wonderful numbers of doors in this production. Yes, there are what? twenty-four doors. <laughs> twenty-four doors. Tell us a bit about them. Um, 
well, they're brown. And, <laughs> uh, they uh, operate on magnets. No, they're, um, they, they allow for, I mean, I think, I think this Paul's come up with the most ingenious, ingenious design in terms of a plot that really relies, you know, Mozart's so tricky, isn't it? Really relies on what people hear and some people being involved in a conversation and they're not involved in the conversation moments later. And actually what we've created with The Doors is um, a, sort of a, a set where we can have lots of different spaces uh, within, you know, moments. So there really is that sense of... Um, uh, of often just seeing the edges of something or um, being on the other side of a door at the crucial moment, if you see what I mean. So th I think it really ups that the kind of vicarious nature of the piece generally. Because, because doors invariably suggest secrets, don't they? Behind yeah, the closed behind door, closed things doors, we don't know. Yeah. yeah, they do, they do. And, you know, there's, there's also that idea of opening the door onto something, onto an experience or onto a, a new part of your own personality, which we have in this. I mean, you'll see, I won't give the game, a game away, but the doors are very important during the overture and um, repeatedly. <laughs> so I think um, there, are, there are lots of women in the, in the overture that have a door on, opened onto an experience that they've not had before. What, what they also do, perhaps, is, in this production, create a very public world. There is no private spaces, although people go to rooms that look like bedrooms. In the end, we seem to be in a public space with lots of doors, a hotel, a palace, what have you. There's a sense in which private life uh, doesn't seem possible in this world. Yeah, I think that's true, yeah. I think that it is, um, it's a society... Uh, that sort of goes in with the idea of it being a, a very religious society as well, where there is a constant sense of being watched over, either you know, either by God or by your own conscience. Or, and Don Giovanni also, you know, Richard has put him in lots of, lots of scenes where, uh, or, you know, pieces where he isn't in in the score, and so there's a sense that he is quite all knowing, and he has an incredible ability, again, we talked about this a lot in rehearsal, an ability of just being able to intuit what someone's weakness is or what they are attracted to sexually, which enables him to really kind of manipulate. <laughs> the first performance of the opera was called The Rake Punished, or Don Giovanni. So should we see the Don as a menace to social order, someone who is essentially a challenge to the conventional way in which we ought to behave? Call it morality, call it social class, or what have you. Um, yeah, so I think he's certainly a challenge to, like, our own conscience and the rationality of that, certainly. Like, whether whether it is worth getting and it is about things um, and how honest we are with ourselves. Coming back to what we were saying earlier about him being very honest with himself in terms of, you know, whether you agree with his um, take on life or not, he is at least quite open about it with himself, whereas the other characters have more to navigate in terms of their own conscience. We're only two years away from 1789 and the French Revolution, that kind of extraordinary reversal of traditional views. Do, do you think that Don Giovanni kind of is a precursor of the rebel that will grow out of the revolution and become such a central figure in the romantic literature and romantic art in general? That's a slightly more tricky one because thinking about from this production's point of view, the Don in this production is very... Um, is is very, very high status and in terms of wealth as well. 
and my understanding, I mean, I'm not brilliantly, it's been a long time since I studied the French Revolution. Um, but uh, my understanding of it would be that, that you know, that, that wealth is, like, is key to that, and that's much more about the people taking over. There feels here, certainly with Mazzetto and Zelina, that in some respects their lower, you know, their working class status really acts against them in parts of this, and that doesn't feel totally true to what I understand as being the revolution, you know, being key to the revolution. Well, what, I mean, picking up on something Ifa was saying about, about his indiscriminate desire for people of all classes and kinds, in a way, maybe yeah. the fact that he transgresses by chasing after Zelina uh, and not staying in his own class, but again becomes a, perhaps a moment of rebellion in his life. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. There is a real, and, and that is, there is a real kind of, a dem democracy about he's very democratic about who he'll sleep with certainly so yeah I think maybe it does both at the same time <laughs> if it was quite clear that she thinks the opera is about sex is that what you've all decided as you've worked on it um I don't I that certainly wasn't the it certainly wasn't the starting point when we started talking about it in rehearsals I think it was much um it was it, it was more this sense of what we repress about kind of repression and and natural desires whether that's and and for a lot of the characters that's that is a those natural desires are sexual but for other people they aren't necessarily you know you don't you don't get that Ta certainly Alan Clayton's Otavio isn't isn't totally driven by sexual desire it's much more that um you know, he's he's accepted a social order and can't really believe that somebody um, like Don Giovanni would do would do something like that. And is you know, he's not he's an inactive, ineffective man, really. Um, a, a, a last question. I, I suppose um, this is after Flute, Mozart's most popular opera. It's the one that, that, that everybody thinks of as a Mozartian opera. What do you think makes it so popular now? Here we are in the 21st century, long after even Mozart put aside his wig and, 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 and knee breeches. <laughs> what has kept this opera absolutely alive? Um, I, think, I think it's, again, I'm, I feel like I'm going to sort of repeat what Aoife said, really, but it's, I think, having a central character who's so without... Who, who's so without, um, oh, what's the word? You know, um, uh, he doesn't have any, uh, please do give these words. Moral compass. <laughs> yeah, moral, I didn't want to, not more, he, he, he has no sort of um, reservations about it. That's still, still the wrong word, frustratingly. But he, you know, he, he just go. he does what he wants to do. And I think that we are all the other people within the opera. And it's so, in some ways, yeah, we are kind of, we live, we're allowed to live vicariously through Don Giovanni or indeed the, you know, or indeed the people he sleeps with for that, for that moment. Because I think, of, like, certainly in this production, we talk about, we talked about sort of having, having sexual contact with Don Giovanni is kind of like being enlightened. So I think, I think that is the thing, well, certainly for me, that makes it interesting for me. And that's without talking about how incredible the music is. I mean, I could just listen. To, I've had it going around my head for eight weeks, and that's fine.
Yeah. Um, Sarah Clipple, thank you very much You're indeed. Welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be joined now by another Sarah, Sarah Champion, who's covering the role of Donna Elvira in this production, and by Andrew Smith, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, and they're going to perform an aria from Mozart's opera. Would you please welcome Sarah Champion and Andrew Smith. We're going to give you the microphone if you want to sit down yeah. and to talk, talk first. Um, who exactly do you think Donna Elvira is? She, I think in a way she's kind of an unlucky woman because she, she has encountered Don Giovanni and, and like the, the other character, certainly in this production, has, has become addicted to him and, and, uh, and, becomes, I guess, obsessed with him and, and uh, when she's abandoned by Don Giovanni, it, it, the, she just has to figure out a way to get him back. Is it love or is it addiction? That's an interesting question, you know. It, it, I could be doing another production of Don Giovanni in a couple months' time and I could have a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I think there are, there are many different interpretations of, of this character. And I think, I think in this production it is very much an addiction. Um, in some productions you see her as, as uh, vengeful and angry, um, but in this production uh, she can't help herself and she wants to, to save him. So in this production, um, where does her desire for revenge come from? Is it something she feels she ought to want? Is it a way of covering her real feelings? I think it's, I see it as a way of her covering her real feelings and that she, um, she wants to get in between Don Giovanni and Zerlina because then she can save him and, and she and he can be together. She wants to be with Don Giovanni. I think that is her ultimate. She sees that as, as her goal and what is going to happen through her saving other women from him. In, in some productions, um, Donna Elvira is exactly the same at the end of the evening as she was when she first came on. Mm -hmm. Not in this production. What has happened to her psychologically? She, she goes a bit crazy. <laughs> I, I was going to say, <laughs> unhinged. Unhinged, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, when, when she she encounters very early on in the opera when we meet her and she has this, this scene with, with Leporello and the catalogue aria. And, uh, and, and it's, I think before that moment, she's been looking for him and he's left, but she doesn't quite appreciate what the situation is. And then, and then I think that is really what sets her off when she finds out about all the other women and she finds out this is actually what's happened. And, and, uh, and, and she's not the only one. <laughs> So she's become a kind of fury by the end. Yes. Out of control. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no more. You will see for yourselves. In <laughs> um, when she protects Zelina, um, Massetto's fiancée, from Giovanni, is it because she's horrified at the thought of innocence being betrayed by the Don, or is it because she's actually deeply jealous that he's after another woman? Again, that could be uh, answered differently for different productions. Um, I think in this production, Elvira, um, I don't think jealousy is, is necessarily what's driving her. I think that her desire is to save Don Giovanni, to save his soul. Um, she's quite a, a religious, she's quite a believer. Um, so she wants to, 
to, to save Don Giovanni ultimately so that she can then be with him. I think that is, is what she thinks is going to happen. That is her fantasy. So I don't think in this production it's jealousy. But in another production it could just as easily be jealousy. It's how, how demanding is the music Mozart writes for Don uh, it's quite demanding. <laughs> it's, um, she has quite a lot of um, very difficult melodic lines, lots of really big intervals in all of her arias where she's just jumping from way up high to way down low. Um, strange harmonic surprises, um, particularly in the aria that we're going to give you, um, which um, uh, you, you sort of, your ear is sort of expecting something and then it goes somewhere else. So lots of tricky intervals and big jumps and... It's sometimes said with Mozart's arias that, that this is when characters tell the truth, um, that the music and indeed the, 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 the Ponte text sets is about truth-telling. Is that your, is that your feeling? Does, are these are the moments when, often perhaps not entirely aware of it, but uh, Donna Vera tells us the truth mm. about it. I think in this, in this aria that we're going to perform, she's very much telling the truth. She's, she's saying, um, he, he betrayed me. Um, and yet, you know, I'm, I'm angry as hell, <laughs> but, but I can't help it. When I see him in trouble, um, I, I can't help myself. My heart wants to help him. And, and she's very much torn between those, those two ideas. A word about the hour in a moment, but do you think that Mozart as a composer um, uh, always helps his singers? Dramatically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he writes very well for the voice. Um, that doesn't mean it's not demanding and technically challenging, but, um, you know, sometimes you get um, pieces you have to sing in roles and you think, does this composer have any idea how the human voice works? And you never get that with Mozart. You know, as long as, as, long as you've got the, the, the right voice matched to the character, then, then it does work. Someone who sat about to sing for exactly the seats you're sitting um, a few years ago, called him Dr. Mozart, in the sense for the voice, he offers kind of an opportunity to regroup all the necessary things you yeah, need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Tell me a bit, you're going to sing Mitra D. Tell us yes. where it comes from, and you're going to do the recitative and the aria. Give yes. us a, a little snapshot of what we're going to hear. Um, so this comes... Uh, quite near the end of uh, the opera. Uh, and uh, Donna Elvira thinks that she has been reconciled with Don Giovanni. Um, and she uh, thinks that she is escaping with Don Giovanni and they're going to go and live happily ever after. Um, and then uh, she discovers, in fact, that it was Leporello dressed up as Don Giovanni and Don Giovanni has gone off with uh, another woman. Um, and, uh, and so... I think at this point in the opera, it's just, it's been building up and it's just become too much and she just can't, she can't cope with it anymore um, and, and just explodes in, in this, this anger of, um, you know, he's done these horrible things to me and yet I, I still love him and I feel, uh, I feel for him and, and I want to save him and I want to help him. Please.
Well, you obviously have been thoroughly entertained, satisfied. You are perfectly equipped for what's going to be an extraordinary evening in the theatre. Congratulations. So our thanks to all of you. Our thanks also to our four guests, Sarah Tipple, Sarah Champion, Andrew Smith and Eva Monk. Thank you all very much indeed.